You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkling. This is uh, Greg Dunkling. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer Blog Talk Radio Show. Uh, We're coming to you live from Burlington, Vermont. First, uh, if you've dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into craft beer, our online certificate program offers industry-specific knowledge to make this possible. Your instructors are craft beer experts from across the U.S. and Canada. The University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program was developed specifically for those who want to learn about the business side of this exciting industry. And for further details, uh, you can either give us a call at 800-639-3210, or you can visit our Facebook page at Facebook slash UVM Business of Craft Beer. For today's show, we are continuing our summer-long discussion, Bubble or Sustainable Growth, examining today's craft beer industry. One of today's guests is Lester Jones, Chief Economist at the National Beer Wholesalers Association. In this role, Lester uh, tracks the economic factors that impact the beer distribution industry. Lester evaluates and develops uh, primary industry data, including economic impact and sales and volume data. If listeners have not read Beer by the Numbers, Columns. This column is authored by Lester. I encourage you to do so. It's a valuable resource for insight into the craft beer industry uh, from the wholesaler distributor perspective. So welcome, Lester. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be here. Appreciate the uh, invite. So let's uh, let's begin today uh, by describing for our listeners the work of the National Beer Wholesalers Association, and specifically what you and your role as the chief economist do. Uh, great. So listen, the, the National Beer Wholesalers Association, it's an advocacy group. It's a trade association funded by its members, and our job is to basically promote the, the fundamental principle of an independent beer distribution system. And... Inherent in that is what we call the three-tier alcohol beverage market where brewers, distributors, and retailers operate independently from each other. It's not a perfect world. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of connections here, but basically the fundamental principle is we want to maintain an independent alcohol beverage market where brewers make their choices, distributors make choices, and retailers make choices independently of any heavy handiness from the, the other participants in the market. And basically that came out of prohibition. If you're in the alcohol beverage market, you kind of have an understanding of how that evolved. We don't want to get too deeply into that in this talk. But for the most part, that's the principles of the National Beer Wholesalers Association. And for my role as the chief economist, I have the privilege of digging around in all kinds of data sets produced by the federal government, from state revenue departments, 
from independent uh, uh, data houses to kind of bring all this mass amount of data together in one place so that we can use facts and knowledge about the industry to promote our message about an independent three-tier system. So that's kind of what I do as an economist for the association. <clears throat> Thanks, Lester. Um, and, and I mentioned earlier beer by by the numbers. It's a it's a great resource. As obviously it's uh, it's something you produce and and it gives uh, those of us who are outside of the industry looking in, or even those inside the industry, an opportunity to to better understand what all those numbers mean. Um, let, let's. Let's take a look, sort of a high-level view of of the the beer industry today from the distributor wholesaler view. What's your assessment of today's craft industry, and what, if any, challenges do you see ahead? Hmm. I, I got a lot of great words. It's exciting. It's dynamic. It's fun. It's interesting. It's competitive. It's everything that we've come to expect from kind of a new. Uh, industry that's grown up over the past 25 years out of what many people see as what was a kind of very limited, stagnant beer market where the primary beers of choice were rather limited between premium lights, some imports, and some regional breweries where we had very few, very minimal selection of beers. Uh, then all of a sudden what we had is this, you know, obvious this growth coming out of the craft beer movement, which just ballooned in the post-2010 recession and uh, just gave us so much variety, so much choice, so much selection that uh, it's, yeah, it's just been a great boom for the industry. And, you know, especially in a time of, you know, kind of very slow, stagnant economic growth uh, post-2010, you know, we've seen this industry grow double digits. We've seen many entrepreneurs come into the market these guys have been some of these guys have been incredibly successful. Sierra Nevada, Boston Beer Company, Langanitas founders. These companies have done very well for themselves. They've been very profitable. They've been very successful. Have managed to get their products out widely across the United States. And this has been a great, great entrepreneurial story, and a great story for the three tier independent three tier system, where there hasn't been a lot of heavy handedness from the suppliers to the distributors to the retailers that it's kind of allowed this marketplace to blossom, to flourish and to grow and to create so much wealth uh, in a relatively stagnant general economic recovery. It's, it's been phenomenal. So great story. Great story. Yeah. Uh, and we'll have a chance to dig a little deeper into uh, some of the, perhaps challenges as, as some in the industry may, may view it. Um, and challenges aren't necessarily negative. Um, so we'll, we'll explore some of those. Um, the other day I was uh, in an in-depth conversation with somebody I met, and he was from Wyoming and traveling through the region, visiting breweries. Of course, many people do that here in Vermont. And at one right. point he stated, uh, distribution is a really big deal. Of course, I'm sure you, you wouldn't disagree with that statement um, coming from the, the distribution side. Um, but talk to us for a moment about, aside from the logistics of getting beer to market, 
Can you describe uh, the ways that distributors help a microbrewery or regional brewery? What are, what are examples of the, the necessary roles that producers and wholesalers uh, play in forming an effective business relationship? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, and there's a lot to cover in that single question. Um, yeah. So, like you said, it's, it's the logistical know-how. It's the, the, the power of logistics. It's the power of local market access that really uh, is what distributors bring to the table when working with a brewer. Uh, so, you know, a basic distributor is going to be in the local market. He's going to have experience about that market. He's going to be a professional when it comes to understanding the logistics, the routing, He's going to be actually, I mean, it's, it's sim- and it's also as simple as training. A keg of beer weighs 125 pounds. Schlepping that keg around in the streets of New York City or out in the country of Wyoming or up in the mountains or in the ski lifts into the, the ski resorts in Vermont, you know, moving beer is it's heavy, it's cumbersome, and it takes a lot. It, it takes a little bit of know how to be able to do that cheaply, effectively, efficiently, and, you know, without throwing people's backs out for crying out loud. And it goes from everything from the capital equipment, the trucks, the hand carts, you know, the, uh, the equipment used to move beer around to basically having a good experience rated with your workers' compensation program so that every time someone slips and falls hauling a keg around, you know, it's not, it's not a, a big deal. It can be very expensive if you're inexperienced and you're not training people to do this job effectively and efficiently. You know, and that's just the operational side of it. You know, put the operations aside and the logistics aside. Now let's turn to 600,000 licensed retail establishments in the United States that sell alcohol beverages and sell beer in particular. Developing a relationship with the corner bar owner, the local restaurant owner, or even, you know, on the independent side of the business takes a lot of work, and you have to do that on, at the street level. Now a lot of breweries have local reps. You know, but they can only really assign one or two local reps to a big market and maybe one local rep to a state or to a, you know, a region in general. So hitting thousands and thousands of retail accounts, you know, it's difficult for one person. But, you know, when you have a good distributor partner and they have a good craft beer program or what we call specialty beer program, uh, you know, those guys are going to work with the retail accounts. They're going to figure out where the customers that prefer craft beer are hanging out. They're going to help that supplier partner find a place to put their beer so that it moves. And remember, beer is, is different from wine and spirits. Wine and spirits you can kind of ship out to the marketplace, and it's okay if a 2011 bottle of wine sits around to 2012 and 2013. It's okay if a bottle of Jack sits around for a year or two and doesn't move. It's inventory that's tied up and it's not being converted into cash, but the product itself doesn't have to be destroyed. Beer is perishable. Most beer is perishable. There are some high-end beers, especially beers, bottled beers that people would prefer to store and keep, but for the most part, the beers that we drink typically have a shelf life, have an out-of-code date. So keeping that beer moving in the marketplace, and the term is velocity, keeping that velocity of that beer going through the marketplace, turning and getting converted into cash and getting reinvested back with the supplier, them ordering more beer. It's, it's very different, and it's complicated 
And uh, when you have so many retail establishments, it's, uh, it can be quite challenging. So if the supplier having a good, strong relationship with its distributor and that distributor having solid local market knowledge of the, uh, of the local marketplace and the consumers there is key to keeping a brewery producing beer consistently and regularly. So, you know, nothing worse than getting a call from a, from a retail saying this beer isn't moving. It's sitting here. It's been two months. It's been three months. What are we going to do now? And the call mm-hmm. you want from your retailer is, I'm out of stock. I need more of that beer. That's the kind of call you want to have. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, that's, we're talking that's with... kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. We're talking with Lester Jones, Chief Economist at the National Beer Wholesalers Association. If you would like to join the conversation, uh, the phone lines are open. Call us at 929-477-1757. That's 929-477-1757. Press number one on your phone keypad to enter the queue to ask us a question. So um, you've written about the high-end segment or case prices of $25 and over, uh, and you've, you've uh, indicated that they're increasing by, they increased by 5% in 2015 and growing in share of the total beer market. Could you describe for us the industry based on these price segments? Okay, so I have a saying, we all can't drink, you know, we can't all drive Ferraris, we can't all drive, Rolls Royces, you know, everyone's got to kind of drive the cars that they that fits their 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 income, right? Uh, beer is a lot like that in a certain way. Is that there's there's beers that cross the spectrum of availability. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, when you you know buy most consumer products. There's high end products. There's kind of middle of the road products, and then there's kind of the lower end uh, value products. So the beer industry and the alcohol beverage industry kind of has that same flair. Uh, craft beers in general tend to run a little bit higher at retail, anywhere around $35 to $40 a case. Imports are a little, still considered high end, but they typically run around $30 a case. The domestic super premium business that we, that we, we you know, that includes premium lights like Bud Lights run $25 a case. And then you kind of work your way down into what we call domestic sub-premiums and more of the value brands that you can kind of pick up for $15 a case. So you can see that you go from $15 a case all the way up to $30, $40 a case across that economic spectrum. And tradition, you know, historically, I should say, the beer industry – mostly operated in a below premium uh, space in that it, we had high-end premium brands of beer, but basically beer kind of stuck into that $20, $25 a case uh, world, basically on average. And it wasn't until the craft beer movement kind of took hold and people started saying, wow, I could, I could drink a higher quality not a quality, but a higher price beer that had a little bit more to it. It was more hoppy, it had more malt flavor. It had, it's, they're all kind of terms that the industry used to describe this premiumization of the beer industry. But no matter what you called it, we premium, we, the pre, the, making the beer industry more premium and higher value kind of drew in a lot more consumers 
to the space, the guys that, you know, who maybe were wine drinkers, you know, we attracted some of those. People who are high spirit drinkers, we could have tracked some of those into that space. And then also the people that, we, you know, 10 years ago that were drinking basically average price premium beer, all of a sudden, oh, look, there's a, there's a higher segment. There's more beer out there that I can afford. When you want to go from a Ford Taurus to a Lexus, there's a big price step there. But when you want to go from a Bud Light to a Sierra Nevada, you know what? The, the, the additional money is not like buying a higher-end car. You're just buying a higher-end beer. So instead of drinking like six of those medium-priced beers, maybe you drink three of the higher-priced beers. It's, 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 it's the elasticity of demand that falls into place. And that's, you know, that's the economic talk coming through. But for the most part, you know, the, going to a higher-end price segment wasn't a big deal for the beer consumer. Are, are we seeing? Uh, are you seeing any trends, though, Lester, that are indicating that the price is climbing uh, with with uh, some of these specialty products? Uh, you know, the other day I went in and, and bought a six pack, and many of the products that I had my eye on. I may, maybe it's just me and my preferences, but they were in the ten to twelve dollar per six pack range. Um, are we seeing an upward? Uh, price uh, pricing of specialty uh, beer products. Okay, that's a that's a great question because keep in mind, in economics we look at marketplaces, and in yeah. basic economics, marketplaces are defined where buyers and sellers come together to exchange goods and services. So yeah. the beer market is large; it's vast. It spans six hundred thousand retail establishments. So depending on where you are in the country. Where you use the shop, you will find radically different uh, price equilibriums for beer. For uh-huh. example, if you go to a convenience store, convenience is by definition, hey, it's, it's convenient for me to be here. I'm kind of expecting to pay a little bit of higher price for the convenience of pulling up, running, and grabbing something cold and running out. Versus going to the big box retailer where you got to drive in, fight all the people, grab a big cart quarter of a mile to the back of the store, dig through big pallets of beer, and then get in line and go back out. So those pricing dynamics are very different. So depending on where you live, where you choose to shop, and your lifestyle, you're going to be subject to a very radical pricing dynamic. The problem is, is that our pricing comes from what we call scanner markets. And scanner markets are, are where – when you go to the grocery store and you scan your six-pack of beer, it gets registered, and that price gets put into an electronic database. It goes off to an IRI shop or a Nielsen shop, and then they aggregate that data, and they report out the scanner markets. And that scanning of prices becomes the basis of the analytics that brewers, distributors, and retailers use to analyze the beer market. But it's only – a portion of the beer market. So much other things happen in the beer market that are unobserved and we don't track. For example, a stadium. When you go to a stadium, you go into a closed marketplace and you pay 12 bucks for a beer. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of situations, the $12 you pay, it might be $10 for a premium white beer and it might be $11 for a craft beer. So all of a sudden, the pricing 
becomes radically different. Um, uh-huh. So going back to your original question is that, yeah, we've seen in a lot of instances, in a lot of markets where specialty products are sold, that there is a lot of price inflation in that high-end product. But, you know, when you go to your local bar and an IPA is on sale for 3 bucks or $2 a pint, all of a sudden that's a totally different market and uh, has a lot of different implications to the average price that people pay for beer in general. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm a producer and I'm selling uh, uh, beer in my market, my home market, for for ten dollars uh, a six pack, and I then move into a neighboring state, uh, what what are some assumptions that I should or should not make about the price that I might get in that that different market? What I thought I heard you say just a few minutes ago is that that those prices may be very um, they, they fluctuate based on the specific market that you're in. Did I did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. Yes. You can see you can see very different pricing uh uh going on. There's a great brand that has a great story in beer history, as I would say, and that's Rolling Rock. Rolling Rock beer was a brand that when it sat in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, it was basically a very low priced Beer. It was the local beer. It was considered inexpensive, easy to drink, and everyone's go-to choice. But what happened with Rolling Rock is it kind of went further from its home. It got this cachet of being kind of a, <laughs> a, 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 a super premium brand, and and it slowly, you know, as it as it went from being a small little local Pennsylvania brand of beer that was considered relatively inexpensive it kind of spread out across the United States and actually found pockets where it existed as a super premium brand. And you know, yeah. the, you know, the, it was a great, you know, for a long time it had, a, it had so many different faces just depending on what market it landed in. Yeah. But let's uh, spend a few minutes exploring where beer is sold. Uh, I always find this, this uh, fascinating conversation with my, my friends who are on the t- distributor side as well as on the uh, producer side. The, the on-premise market seems to be <clears throat> gaining traction with some segments of the, the craft beer market. And I recently saw a, um, a Brewers Association chart showing on-premise sales by state. Uh, while this represents um, 15 to 18 percent in some states, uh, talking about I think draft here, and it's only two to six percent in other areas of the country. So really great variation. Um, paint a picture for us of the craft beer market from the perspective of what is selling and where. Okay, so once again, craft tends to be at the upper boundaries of the super premium market. It's, you, you know as well as I do the price of a six-pack in a specialty bottle shop, the price of a six-pack of craft beer at a convenience store, at a grocery store. But it also kind of follows income. If you look at like a place like Oregon and Washington in the Northwest, the birthplace of craft, you know, those are very interesting markets for us because those markets are actually doing incredibly well from an economic and demographic perspective. People are moving there. They're staying there. They're finding good jobs. Uh, there's a lot of 
a lot of a lot of uh, technology companies and 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 high and companies that tend to attract a lot of young people. And so you see those northwest markets like Washington, Oregon, kind of grow demographically, grow socio socio socioeconomically. They've done very well, and at the same time, craft has done incredibly well there also. And uh, and a place like Vermont, you guys have seen a lot of good growth as well, and you've seen a great, a very strong craft beer market evolve. Uh, you can kind of go around the country and find Texas, you know, another strong demographically growing market. It was it was great because it didn't really have much of the craft beer market pre 2010, but then after 2010 market just exploded as places like Austin and San Antonio and Dallas kind of grew up and uh, economically and brought a craft beer market with it. You know, unfortunately there are some, some, some rust belt states that haven't seen as strong as a craft beer market as other states have. But once again, that's kind of driven by the economy in that state. You know, if you can find, Beautiful thing about craft beer also is it starts small, and we'll, yeah, I think we'll get into this also. Is brewers kind of tend to start small. So if you can go to a place in Ohio and you can find a nice uh, community that is kind of growing economically and demographically, you can kind of find a market for a small domestic independent craft brewer to kind of blossom in those spaces. So I tell people, you know, you, you know, you, you, no dinero, no cerveza. You don't have money, you're not going to buy beer. Uh, you just you, people just can't consume beer without not how economies work or the beer markets work. So you have to have an economic base to have a vibrant beer market. Let me uh, bring in uh, callers if there are any out there that would like to join the conversation. Uh, we're talking with Lester Jones, chief economist at the National Beer Wholesalers Association. If you would like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open. Call us at 929-477-1757. And don't forget to press the number 1 on your phone keypad to enter the queue to ask us a question. No questions from the audience. 9629, go ahead with your question. Hi, hi. My name is Brittany. Um, I'm I'm actually from Burlington, Vermont. I just had a, a quick question for Lester. Um, so you know, okay. clearly there are millennials are are out and they're drinking craft beer and they're impacting the type of beer that's being consumed. Um, could you describe like today's trends in craft beer and how different consumer audiences are influencing influencing this? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Uh, okay, so so let's let's take apart the demographics of the United States a little bit, and once again, I'll I'll repeat my repeat what I said earlier that every state is very different demographically. You know, some states are younger, some states are older, some states tend to hold on to that that millennial demographic uh, a lot better than others. Uh, so with that in mind, I'm going to say a couple of things. So. Gen, you know, the, the, the Gen Xers, the generation that came before the millennials, they tended to be very beer-focused in the way they consumed alcohol. And if you look at some of the research surrounding how Gen Xers consume alcohol, they actually started 
drinking beer a lot more heavily than wine and spirits. And as they grew up, they kind of started adapting more wine and spirits into their, into their consumption patterns. The thing about millennials is they came into the market very differently than the Gen Xers did. They, when they became legal drinking age adults, they didn't just come into the beer market. They came into the beer, wine, spirits market. They came into the alcohol beverage market almost equally. Uh, and it was very interesting because, you know, all the big producers, the big suppliers, and a lot of the retailers, well, everyone in the alcohol beverage market kind of expected millennials to behave a little bit like, well, not a little, a lot like Gen Xers. And so they were, as we watched this millennial bubble slowly turn 21 and become legal drinking age consumers, we were all really excited in the beer industry because we thought we were going to get a big lift in the volume because of this onslaught of millennials. But it didn't really happen. It's because simultaneously we had a great recession where people were kind of financially you know, uh, hammered by decreasing property values. Uh, and at the same time, we had a, gro- a growth in the craft beer movement where everyone kind of was drinking a little bit higher, higher end priced beers, but not drinking as much volume. So the dynamics of the marketplace gave us this situation where a brand new demographic was coming of age. The expectations were, well, the way people used to behave will be the way people now behave. That's a general assumption that economists, economists, forecasters, demographers, sociologists, everyone kind of makes that assumption is that, you know, the best, the best predictor of the future is to kind of look to the past. And sometimes when you do that, you get burned. And I think the beer market kind of got a little burned by that because we're expecting millennials to behave a lot like the Gen Xers, and they didn't. They came on board with a little bit more premium taste in their in, uh, and uh, that's kind of where they focused, and that's what threw everyone off a little bit. But to your question is, yes, millennials are consuming a little bit more craft, but they're also consuming more wine and they're consuming more liquor than, uh, liquor than their predecessor generation did. How's that for an answer? That's great. That great. Uh, Thank thanks. you so much. Thanks for your call, Brittany. Okay. Um, I'd like to uh, bring into the conversation our, our other guest today, Chris Rice from All About Beer magazine. Chris is the president and publisher of All About Beer. Uh, he's also uh, worked on the producer side. He was uh, founding uh, one of North Carolina's leading breweries in Chapel Hill uh, before uh, taking on uh, All About Beer. Uh, Chris spends, I know and talk to him frequently, he spends a good deal of time traveling the country speaking with producers and wholesalers and offers uh, value, valuable insights in today's craft beer industry. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thank you, Greg, very much. It's, uh, it's a treat to speak with both you and Lester. Hey, hey, so I want to ask both of you a question here. Um, I'll give you a chance first, Chris, to, to jump in, and then Lester, like your take on this. Our, our summer blog talk radio series, we focused on the question of is the – craft beer industry approaching a bubble, or is this a sustainable growth? Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard that question uh, on your travels as well. I'd like both of your responses uh, to those who raise this concern about a bubble in the industry. And when you look out uh, a few years, uh, what do you see? Chris, go ahead uh, with with your uh, response to that. 
Sure thing. Um, so as far as a bubble term, that's not a term we use at all. And certainly the, the, the craft beer segment has grown considerably. And, and while Lester is far more educated in uh, uh, the understanding when, uh, not when, but understanding that the notion that at some point um, uh, regression will always return to the mean um, and, uh, um, and trends will return to the mean. Um, you know, I, I think this is, for many of the reasons you guys covered under the millennial uh, question a few minutes ago, uh, to the nature of distribution in the category, you know, the consumers made a shift. And overall, the consumers made a shift in, in beer, much like um, so many other industries that are going under a change of structure, whether it's media. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm here. Chris, did we, lose, did we lose you? Perhaps. So, Lester, before, you know, Chris will probably join, join us again. He might be on the road with a cell phone issue, but um, go ahead. Uh, what are your thoughts? Okay. So, it, yeah, Chris, Chris hit, it on the, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, bubbles, bubbles come out of, you know, economic history during the tulip bulb craze when everyone had to have tulip bulbs and, you know, people were losing their lives over it and their fortunes simply over some uh, perceived value of how much a tulip bulb was really worth. And uh, if you read back on it, it's quite fascinating, but it was actually based on everyone trying to sell and buy getting the better of someone else. And yeah. you know, that's not what's going on in the craft beer market. What's going on in the craft beer market is a lot of entrepreneurs, the opportunity, and they're pursuing opportunity because their returns on their time and their money seem best placed in the craft beer industry than anywhere else in the economy. And like I said, coming out of 2010, this industry was growing double digits, and everyone's like, there's nowhere else. You good? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and so I, there's nowhere I, I that think anywhere I'm back so there's nowhere that anyone else could put their money except for in the beer market that would give them those kind of double-digit returns. So as, as long as people see the returns being above normal in the craft beer industry, they'll continue to invest in it. At some point, you know, people will be, well, I can put my money in this activity, and it's going to actually give me a better return than the craft beer industry. And until that happens, we will – continue to see people enter the market. And that's yeah. basically the basic economics of why we've seen this continued growth in craft beer and in new entrants because, frankly, people don't see better places to invest their money at this time. Yeah. Uh, Chris, and, jump and, back and, in. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, Lester, thank you. Uh, uh, Lester's points are dead on about investment, and that's exactly what I see when I'm hearing – and I'm talking to brewery, new brewery founders or those that are finding new financial structures for their current operations is they see that return as a real possibility because the consumer has made this shift. Uh, I, I don't know where I got muted, or, uh, but I was starting to say that, you know, like media, like retail, like entertainment, like so many industries, that consumer, that, that, that um, buyer of goods in, those, in, in beer and those other industries is just changing what they're looking for. Right now, the demographics are great for investment. And, I think you guys hit on a fantastic topic, and Lester made a great point about delivering beer to the market. It's 125 pounds a keg, and what we've seen, what we have seen in the past, 
um, is at some point, is, uh, like any industry that's growing at, at, at such a high level, um, uh, there are unintended consequences. And what we know happened 20 years ago uh, is that a lot of guys that got into this business said, wow, this is very laborious and very hard. <laughs> and, and part of their personal return wasn't so much financial as it was, uh, it's, this is a hard business to do every day. And there'll be those that fall out. But as long as that consumer is still fascinated by these trends and, and, and styles and interest in beer as a choice alongside of wine and spirits, um, which seems to be where the consumer wants to go, um, you know, there, there will be that continued interest in investment. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, get back to the distributor question uh, for a moment here. And this is, you know, both of you um, spend time looking at it from both the producer and distributor side. Um, but, you know, we hear a lot from, from uh, uh, small uh, producers, and there are so many of them, um, that the market's crowded. Uh, all we have to do is walk into any retail outlet uh, and see the the vast uh, supply of different products. Um, how does a, a brewery today differentiate itself uh, from another? We had, a few weeks ago, I had Bart Watson on, and and he emphasized the the importance of differentiation uh, for breweries. Uh, how is that accomplished in a in a market that's just getting increasingly uh, congested? Lester, go ahead first. Uh, okay, so I'm I'm going to advocate for the beer distributor, and I'm going to say that having a strong relationship with your beer distributor is key because what you want is a consumer to go to a retail establishment and find a brand that he knows and he trusts and that he knows is quality, that he's going to taste it and it, it was, he liked it the way he did the last time he had it. So if, if you're trying to do it alone and you're doing it haphazardly, and you're trying to be both a brewer, a distributor, and a retailer, you kind of violate a basic principle in economics, which is that of comparative advantage and specialization. Uh, you want to do what you do best. And I believe that brewers brew beer best and distributors distribute beer best. So to, keep, to differentiate your product, you want a strong partner at the distributor level and at the retailer level so that every time your customer comes to your retail establishment, and grabs a six-pack off the shelf or asks for a pint of your beer, he is going to be confident that that beer is quality and it tastes good and at a fair price, and he can rely on it. And that's how beer brands are built. I mean, remember Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors, these guys have been doing this since the 1880s. They've been making beer, distributing beer, and selling beer reliably, consistently, effectively and at a good price so that people go to the stores and they see them and they're like, I know that brand. I want that brand. I trust that brand. Craft brewers have to do that too. Now it's fun if they think being off centered and creating different tastes and, you know, there's such, you know, and, and having all these different varieties and tastes and being a little bit unpredictable might be fun for a certain segment of the population who is a lot more, into exploring different beers, but for the majority of consumers, you know, who have a limited budget, who are putting down seven, eight, nine, ten dollars for a six pack, yeah, they're going to be a little bit more leaning towards consistency and predictability in their beers. So, once again, 
it goes back to who are you selling beer to? What type of consumer? Yeah, Chris, what are you seeing out there? Um, so differentiation, um, what, what can differentiate uh, breweries and how you compete? And I would just say yes. <laughs> um, and <laughs> uh, no, I think, and, and Lester's, Lester's point that you know, these brands that have been around forever, they've been learning every day. What are the attributes that build their brand at Coors, at Miller, at Anheuser-Busch that allow those brands to resonate so strongly with the consumer? And now with craft, We've got a handful of new attributes that have come in, and, and uh, how, how do I trust? I, I, how do I, as a beer drinker, trust uh, certain brands? Or you know, I think the, there's a big attribute um, that folks, everyone as a beer drinker knows about, which is geography. How much does local matter um, in, in ways that it didn't say for the last 35 years? Um, uh, to the drinker overall, and how far does local stretch or regionality? And so. I've heard people say that uh, in, in today's beer world, specifically the craft beer world, you really can differentiate on brand or geography. Uh, and, and I think in both of those attributes, there's so many factors involved. The brewer's ability to brew, the distri- and, and Lester's absolutely right. Who's the distributor involved? Who are the distributors involved in getting your beer to market so the consumer sees it enough that they trust it as a brand? Um, um, those are a couple of things that, that, that come up probably at the, at the highest level as to differentiation and from what we see. So it seems that, you know, every few days, if not every other week, we, we read about another acquisition, uh, ABI or Miller Coors taking over in part or wholly um, another craft beer brand. Uh, it sort of gets to the question of, what do we call craft, and is local important, and is it, you know, if it's important to what uh, segments of the consumer audience are particularly concerned with, uh, with local products, and how does that play out uh, across the country? Are we going to be seeing big brands because of their power of distribution and branding and, and money behind them? Uh, in the markets uh, and the small local breweries in the markets, but what does that mean for the for the mid market? Any thoughts on that? Um, yes, there certainly have been a number of acquisitions, but you know, and with, at all about beer, we as a uh, as a news organization have chosen that we're. We only use the term craft when it relates to somebody quoting the certain category of the industry. You know, I think uh, what what we see, and, and by that, you know, we'll go under the the uh, the clause of beer is beer, and it's it's what the consumer wants and how they want to enjoy it and experience it. Um, and to that end, we have certainly seen uh, numerous um, numerous craft brewers that don't have anywhere near the passion of uh, of some of the wholesalers in the market or the passion of the largest brewers in the country um, and even the smallest brewers in the country. So um, it's that passion around beer, how it's made, and, and the individuals that and the teams that are making it that I think interest us the most. I think in the long run that will interest the consumer the most. Um, um, as it relates to, um, you know, the, 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 I guess the time that we're in and, and acquisitions, you know, kind of goes back to um, what Lester was saying about uh, investment returns. Um, you know, if you, if uh, 
you look out and you believe that there's consistent growth ahead at, at, and the category will remain strong, there's, there's an opportunity for a number of individuals to make money in different ways. So um, acquisitions come for a variety of reasons. I don't know if I answered the question directly, but, uh, but really sure, yeah. on what fear is. Yeah. Uh, Lester, uh, quickly, can you uh, give your take on that? Absolutely. I'd gladly say something. Keep in mind, craft kind of started 25 years that we've had this craft, quote, revolution. And, well, most revolutions last a little bit of time, and then they're over, and then things settle. But, you know, we've had what we've called the craft revolution for 25 years, and eventually someone's got to sit down and say, okay, the revolution is over. Everyone put away your guns. Let's all go home and start tilling the fields again and raising families. (laughs) So that's what happens when a revolution ends. And here we are 25 years later, and, the market has matured. You know, we're not seeing the double-digit growth rates. We've seen the significant chunk of volume that's a lot harder to add this even more volume on top of it. We're not going to see craft beer double yeah. anytime soon. It's just I, I want to thank a, both of you. Un- of unfortunately, we're out of time oh, okay. today. Uh, we could go on for hours here. I thank both of you for <laughs> participating in today's show. and. Uh, we will uh, schedule another call at another uh, future date. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Love to do Lester it. and Chris, appreciate your time Lester. today. Thank you. Take care. Bye, Chris. Bye, Greg.